Let's turn to our primary text, 1 John chapter 5. Been a busy week here, so let me just finish up my sermon. And Rita said, don't go too long, so I'll just cross this part off here. And it's been a great week, it really has. Wonderful, the Lord's really showing his, his glory. Primary text, 1 John chapter 5. We pick up where we left off. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe or keep, literally Greek says do, his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Well, could anyone tell me uh, how many times now John has said in this letter that we are to obey or keep or observe his commandments? A lot. I mean, I don't know either. That's why I'm asking. It's been a whole bunch of times. And I'll just use that word bunch. I don't know how many that is either, but it sounds like a lot. And why do you think that the Apostle John has told us a whole bunch of times to obey God's commands? Um, Is it because he he wants us to feel miserable because we so often fail at keeping the commands? Or is it because, you know, John just wants us to artificially pretend like we keep his commands and outward obedience so we can look around at the other world around us and and look at them as if we're stuffy, old, snotty Christians. No. No, I don't believe that is is the case either. So I'd like to illustrate the, the answer to why John has asked us so repeatedly to focus on obedience. And since my mother is here with us today... Uh, It seems expedient to employ her in my illustration, but I will do so very carefully. (laughs) When I was a young boy, and my mother and my father both expected me to obey their rules, do not smoke, don't stay out late, don't drive too fast, tend to business in school. Why did they encourage me to do these things? Were they trying to set up uh, stumbling blocks for me to fail? Were they, were they trying to, for me in some way, just not enjoy childhood? Or were they wanting me to succeed? You know, parents didn't set behavioral parameters on my life, and, and the parents here are the same way. You're not setting behavioral parameters on your children's lives um, so that you can just make their life miserable. You know, when I was younger, I would stray from the beaten path a little bit and get off the, the paved road, slip in the ditch now and then. And um, those, those signposts that mom and dad put up, those, those reminders of obedience, they would help me to get back on the road. Help me get back on the paved road. Um, that's one of the reasons that the Bible has so much didactic or moralistic teaching. Uh, Our sinful flesh is so strong that it tries to pull us over into the ditches 
off from the center of the paved road, and, and it's so easy for us to be, to, to be symbolically distracted by the world's billboards that are flashing on the side of the road. We're enticed by the storefront windows that say, come in here. There's neon signs that want to grab our attention and pull us into the ditches, right? And uh, similar to driving a real car, uh, if we don't continually adjust and keep our eyes up on the road, keep watch of the signs, and stay on that narrow pathway of life, uh, it's, it's very possible we could crash really hard in the ditch, isn't it? Uh, so God's commands, in some ways, function as a warning system and a corrective system so that we can stay on the narrow road and not wreck out. Um, as a side note, before we begin our text, and, and so we don't immediately miss the whole point entirely for the personal application of this, this passage, it's essential to remind ourselves that the triple X adult-rated theater that's alongside the road flashing at us, um, that's not the only dangerous type of distraction that we are going to find when we're going through life. That's not the only type of sin. Um, because as good church-going Christian folk, it's really easy to persuade ourselves that because we don't do that, because we don't smoke five packs a day, do drugs, or engage in pornography, you know, that we've all got it together, right? We really got it got it together because it's actually relatively easy for Christians to place physical barriers on our outward behavior as compared to working on our heart. And, and we might be tempted to tell ourselves that because we don't stop and have a game of cards and, and a beer on Friday on the way home with the boys, and, and because we diligently return straight to our homes, to the Cleaver household, you know, where little Wally and Beaver are playing ball out inside the white picket fence and everything's just perfect. We go straight home to that. Sometimes we, we congratulate ourselves how godly we are by our outward behavior. But it's beneficial to remind ourselves that it's not only the outward behavior that is our problem. The inward acts of sin that dwell in our hearts are, are equally, possibly even more dangerous than the outward acts of sin. In fact, it's actually the sin of pride that caused Satan to fall, isn't it? To be cast out of heaven, to rebel. It wasn't internet pornography that Satan ended up having a problem with. And it was the quest to attain knowledge that caused Adam and Eve in the garden to die. It wasn't adultery. And, and although, although the woman first took the fruit, it, it was both of them who saw it, and it said, the tree was desirable to make one wise. Genesis 3, 6. So they ate. And they died. And Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 28, reminds us of many similar deviant behaviors that are consistent with spiritual death, isn't it? That's a really tough chapter, Romans chapter 1. And, and believe it or not, the, what I'm going to share with you is the passage that follows directly after those verses that severely condemn homosexuality. We, we Christians love to camp on those verses, don't we? 
But sometimes we forget to read the remainder of the chapter. So let me take a moment to read the rest for you. Verse 28 continues, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, they denotes, you know, the ungodly ones that practice idolatry and sexual immorality. They didn't see it fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So notice the judgment of the outward rebellious physical acts, God's judgment on that was to turn people over to increased depravity, right? Increased depravity beyond what they were. So, so what does that look like? Let me read. The text continues. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, they're without understanding or without discernment, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they did not know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. So of these roughly 21 acts of depravity, increased depravity, I, I only see about maybe five, depending upon how you divide them up and classify them, that primarily have to do with outward external behavior. Actually, the majority have to do with the sinful disposition of the corrupt heart and mind. So what does that say about a Christian, a rebirthed Christian, who practices these things, even if they don't practice the physical things? Can you achieve victory in life as a Christian if you practice those things? Real victory? No. I can't see how you could. Reading this text, it would be impossible to achieve victory if you're consistently practicing as being an unloving, boastful, envious, greedy type of person. That's not victory. That's inward behavior. You can't see it very well, can you? Well, obviously alcohol can ruin your health. Sexual immorality can certainly ruin your relationships and your reputation. And murder can land you in prison. Those are all outward behaviors. But from what we observe here, the category of sins that are inward are equally likely to prevent you from experiencing victory in life. This is because due to these inward sins, God will set you on the sideline or even bench you, take you right out of the game. Well, you might, you might still get the family to church on Sunday morning on time. You might be the cutest dressed in the bunch. Um, there's bunches again. You might stand up in front of everyone and lead a prayer meeting. You might stand up and preach. But it's possible you aren't even in the game because God's pulled you out of the game and benched you. Um, and the pride of wearing that Christian team uniform... You know, you like being in the game. You got your uniform on. It can be so deceitful to you and me 
that we don't even realize that we ain't playing. We don't even notice we aren't in the game. And if you aren't playing the game, you don't get to hoist any victory trophy, do you? No reward, no prize. Oh, we, we might really love wearing the team uniform. I remember when I was a little kid, mom could remember this, used to, used to love if you got on a team, whether you're starting or not, let's say you're real young and you hadn't matured yet, but you made the team, but you never played, you just like sit on the bench. Oh, you used to love wearing that jersey, didn't you? Love going around wearing your number 22 football jersey. Everybody sees you're part of the team. But you're never in the game. You don't score any touchdowns. There's no stats under your name. It's just all blanks. I remember that. Especially being young, a freshman, just blanks. Had my, had my number. And I could wear that jersey, but I wasn't playing yet. No runs earned. So for Christianity, for some people, it's all outward appearance through controlling our outward behavior. But sometimes we just aren't in the game. Outward behavior is not enough. What God desires for us is achieving victory through, through having victory over all types of sins. Not just the outward, but also the inward. And today's text will show us that victory arrives through conforming to the image of Christ. And whom we know, it says, in whom there was no sin, nor any deceit in his mouth. You know what? I'd like that there'd be no deceit in my mouth. I'd love it that, that there'd be no slander on my lips or there'd be no dishonest scheming going on in my head. I'd love to be more like Christ. Look with me at verse 1. As we, in, in 1 John chapter 5, as we begin to focus on how to achieve a victorious life. I, I appreciate how the ESV renders this. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Since we've repeatedly uh, in this letter discussed how we must accept and acknowledge the biblical understanding of Jesus as the Christ, the real biblical Christ, uh, in order to be truly born again. I'm not going to belabor this again, except to say that um, a whole lot of people have accrued either false or deficient ideas about who Jesus Christ is. They've believed a lie. They, they've made up a Jesus in their head. We've seen some of that. We've observed that on Sunday evening when we're studying some of the false prophets of our day through a video series in group discipleship. Um, similar to a lot of these false prophets back in John's day and what we see today, uh, it says, uh, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. But I will declare to them, Christ says, I never knew you. So enough, I believe, on that. We've covered that multiple times in this book. But also repeatedly, as shown in 1 John, those who are born of God and who are children of God have a special affinity to others who are born of the Spirit of God. If you've been born of God through spiritual rebirth, you will love both God and those who are born of God, uh, i.e., we love His church. We love other Christians. And verse 2 expands on this, demonstrating that, that our approach, what our approach should be in loving God's children. Verse 2 says, 
By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe, keep, or do his commandments. Look at this closely and let me rephrase the statement. We know that we love the children of God when we observe, keep, or do his commandments. So the answer to this question, how do we love the children or the people of God through keeping his commandments? How does that happen? How, how is that expressed to love the children through keeping the commandments? Somehow this text implies that, that by keeping God's commandments, outward and inward, that, that by doing so we demonstrate we love the children of God other Christians. So, so keeping what type of commandment would, would you anticipate is indicative of expressing love towards other Christians? What type of commandment? Well, you remember back in chapter 2, we studied uh, a, a universal command that was described by John as an, as an old commandment that has become new. Remember from Leviticus 19, John says it was what was old but now has become new. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was the command in John, 1 John chapter 2. So would it not seem reasonable that in, in observing and keeping God's commandments, that John today is only once again, for multiple times in this book, calling us to keep the commands of God so that we will treat other people in how we would like to be treated. Virtually this entire letter from John, and it has become clearer and clearer to me as we progress through it, uh, the entire letter is about cultivating loving and healthy and respectful relationships within the body of Christ. John commanded us to lay down our lives for the brethren. I think that was in chapter 1. Uh, he said, uh, if you got the world's goods, give them to the other brethren, food and covering. Yeah, we are to fellowship with the brethren. In fact, even identifying the false teachers that he calls antichrists, identifying them and removing them from, from the church, that's an act of love towards the brethren, protecting the brethren by, by removing false teaching so that the wolves don't come in, remember, and tear at the flock with those sharp teeth that we talked about that week. So whenever John's telling us to love, it's always demonstrated towards the body of Christ by keeping all God's commands. We love the brethren through keeping God's commands. It means all of them, outward, don't steal from one another. Inward, don't slander or envy others. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. God's commands to love the brethren are not hard. And that means all of them. Christ said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, right? And it becomes easy to keep the outward commands. I, I don't find it difficult to re restrain myself from stealing Nathan's car. Not hard. Um, I don't find it uh, very enticing to do a whole lot of things that are outward behaviors. The ones that we struggle with are the ones, the deceitful behaviors, the ones that only you know. When you're saying something to someone, is it truthful? 
Are you representing things accurately? Do you have a hidden motive in the way that you word your words? These are the sins of the heart. Yet even those, even keeping those, shouldn't be burdensome. Shouldn't be. And God anticipates that we're going to experience victory over all these sins as we grow in Christ. In fact, God expects it. So, so we should expect and anticipate it. Victory, if we permit it, it's going to arrive. We're going to experience victory, and it will arrive in at least a couple different ways. We should be willing to acknowledge and anticipate here at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, we are going to see victory. God says it is, we have the capacity to be victorious. And, and we can experience victory over all these types of sins. We should expect it. We want to be a championship team, don't we? We want to be as good as we can be within what God has provided us to be. That looks different for every congregation and every church. But we want to be a championship team. As a team, we're going to have to overcome the world around us in order to achieve that victory. Especially if we want to hoist that trophy, right? The victory trophy. We're victorious. God says we should want to be victorious. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 through the Apostle Paul, it says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in a, such a way that you may win. Run in such a way that you may win. We're all running together. All of us here are running together, and we're supposed to do it in a way which will win. Even to Timothy, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 2, verse 5, If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. There are rules to the game. What are the rules? Well, the pathway to victory and and the winner's circle and hoisting the trophy um, is progressive outward and inward obedience to Christ's commands. Those are the rules. And the individuals and the churches that win are the ones who diligently exercise. uh, They demonstrate obedience through faith. Look at our, our uh, our next verse, number four. Then we'll turn directly to application. For whatever is born of God, what is born of God? The church is born of God, right? Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith in Christ achieves victory and overcomes the world in this passage through increasing obedience to God's commands. How do we do that? How do we do that? Pay very close attention. This this is going to floor you. Are you ready? When God in the Bible clearly tells us something to do, we do it. We do it. We obey. Individually, we obey. Corporately, as a body, we obey. Now, how does that look practically? Plain and simple, 
We just sang a song, Trust and Obey. Trust in God, your faith and obedience is the pathway to a victory life, victorious life. That's a pathway to victory. And um, plain and simple, God's commands are not so burdensome that we shouldn't be able to achieve victory together, right? God's commands, if he tells you to do something, to obey, he's never going to steer you wrong. It may not seem reasonable to you. When you see it in scripture, you're like, man, I don't know how that's going to go down. Obey. Obey. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't indicate someone who stands up uh, during a meeting and says, you know, I've got a message from God, and we're supposed to open an orphanage in Cleveland. No. That's not authoritatively God's word. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is concrete obedience to what is found in God's word. What is clearly found in God's word. When God tells us to do something, we do it. Here's some examples. Very straightforward. Easy application today to understand. Harder to practice. Ready, young folks? As an individual, or as a young person, or a teenager even... Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, God says. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. What is that promise? So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. That's Ephesians 6.1. That's what God commands. So young folks, God wants you to achieve victory in life. He wants it to be well with you and even wants you to live a very long time on earth in a victorious fashion, in order to serve him. The pathway to that? Simply obey your parents, it says, in the Lord. As long as they're asking, what they're asking you to do is within the parameters of the Lord. You obey, and God is going to open up pathways for you to be victorious through obedience. It's not, it's not too hard. Let's stay in the, in the same chapter there, Ephesians 6, and just take the next verse. For parents... It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Plain and simple, right? You want to bless your children. You want them, and your family, by the way, to sidestep the potholes of life. Don't be too hard on your children. Don't don't provoke them to anger where they resent your faith. But do discipline them and disciple them. It says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a very high priority, according to God. It is a very clear message. Um, because God wants you to do it. God doesn't command you as parents to take your children to the cinema three nights a week and spend every other uh, Sunday um, out at Disney. That's not a command of the Lord. Of course, I'm being a little bit... Ridiculous there. But we don't get commanded to do that stuff. Take the time, make the priority of investing in your children as the Lord commands you to do so. Do it. Obey. Even even if that means you have to reassess your time, reassess your finances, or your schedule. Do it. It's going to be a blessing. When you see it in the word of God, he is not not trying to stumble you. More individual commands. We can find these directly in Scripture. Don't cheat on your taxes. 
don't do it. Do not cheat on your taxes. God will make sure you never get, get put in prison for it. Never get out. Well, you might get audited. <laughs> don't cheat on your spouse. Don't do it. Absolutely don't do it. It's, it's forbidden. Don't lie. Don't arrange your, your life in a, in a manner that consistently lives off debt. Don't slander others. And then there are positive commands as well. Share the gospel. Do it. Give generously. Do it. When the Bible says to do it, do it. When the Bible says don't do it, don't do it. So observe his commands, and you are going to chart a path to victory. How about as a corporate sense? We'll talk about as a church body here briefly, and then we'll dismiss. There are many clear commands for churches in Scripture. In fact, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be studying 1 Timothy beginning in January, probably early January, and looking at the church, working in the, looking at the form and function. But in 1 Timothy 2, it says, first of all, first of all, it says, pray. Give prayers, petitions, thanksgivings. All, all four of those words are types of prayers. And what is the main point of, of that passage? God wants people to know the gospel, right? So we're praying evangelistically, even for kings and all who are in authority, it says. We're praying evangelistically that people would exercise faith, that the Holy Spirit would go ahead of us and convict the hearts of people and we can share the gospel. Also in, uh, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul asks for corporate prayer from the church's writing, church he is writing. He says, pray for us, Paul means that's him and his partners, that, door will, that God will open up a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. That is the gospel. That is a prayer focus. That is commanded by God that we pray evangelistically. That is priority number one. So praying for personal needs is legitimate. I pray for Rita's back. It's important. As a, as a, as a corporate entity, I, sorry if I overuse that word, as a group entity in the church, that's not our priority in prayer. It's not our priority in prayer. It, it what can't be at the expense of evangelistic prayer, which is commanded in Scripture. Prayer has to be prioritized, and, and, and the biblical priority is the spread of the gospel. And, and it's... Leadership's responsibility, the board, pastors, it's our responsibility to model evangelistic prayer as the priority. That souls would be saved, they would come into the church, and God, Christ's kingdom will expand. That is urgent. Now, there's nothing wrong to, with praying for a, a personal need as well. Very, very important to pray for Pastor Sebris, that God would have mercy. But it is not the priority of the church. Evangelistic prayer is more important. Besides, there's plenty of opportunities to pray individually for Rita's back. There's plenty of opportunities. Paul had a thorn in the flesh to which he prayed how many times? Three. And he's writing the letters uh, of the churches, and, and is he asking them, you know, let's all join in together and pray for my back? No. You can pray individually for your your ailment, it doesn't necessarily have to be 
It doesn't have to be dismissed as a prayer item, but the priority of prayer that we have to have here is evangelistic, number one. And we will continue to pray, pray for people's needs as well. But not at the expense of the gospel being the focus. The gospel has to be the focus. Rita and I pray for her back at home. God, one of the good things that's become really clear, and we talk, talked about this last summer, is God is not empowered by our prayer. We had Benny Hinn two weekends ago, talking with some guy on there. He's a false teacher. And he was talking on there how God has the power, but we give the permission. God, God's hands are tied until we pray, and our prayer gives God the permission to act. As if we're sending up some kind of power beam. I've said that before many times. God, you need me. Redirect it over to read his back. No. We don't empower God. That's something that is so prevalent in our, in our culture. It is so prevalent. We leave our requests known to God, whether individually, if that's who you're with, or two, two of us together, or as a church, and we let God work it out. He has the power. He doesn't need our permission. Now I lost my spot. We need to make evangelism and the gospel front and center priority number one going forward. Continue to call me for prayer, by the way. I love to pray on the phone with folks, and I do. It's not my point. We're looking at as priorities in Scripture that we cannot put on the back burner. There are also no, numerous other commands in the Bible to the church, especially church leadership, the pastors and the board. Very important here. We need to obey what God's word commands in order to place ourselves in the pathway of victory as a church. We have to corporately obey God when he tells us to do something. And uh, we're going to look at a whole bunch of these when we study the pastoral epistles, and especially 1 Timothy in January. The, how God tells us the church should be governed. And it's designed by God to have form and function. There are roles, such as pastors and elders, deacons, and there are qualifications for each of these roles. You can't make up your, your own rules to what the qualifications are. You go by God's rules. And some are very specific. Some qualities are given some latitude on who can serve in these roles. Uh, but going forward where scripture is clear, we need to obey God's commands and how we function. Especially as reflected in our govern, government, governing documents as we refine those going forward. If we want to experience victory going forward, we need to obey God where God says obey. You know, one of the, one of the greatest challenges that pastors and leaders have, well, it really is difficult, is to avoid governing by politics. Well, maybe we could say it this way and it won't be taken the same way. Maybe there's some way we can make this a little softer and people won't, really won't get what we mean. Is that temptation? Whether you're dealing with family or whatever, no, we just need to obey. We obey, declare what God's word says, and, uh, and, and enact how God wants us to function. And when God, when God has clear in his word that he wants us to work on church discipline, we need to practice church discipline. He says, do it, you do it. And you say, well, maybe if we wait 10 years, maybe it'll go away. God didn't say that. Obey. Um, 
What we ask from you is going forward, especially as we work through these and work through the pastoral epistles, when we need to act, when leadership needs to act, we, we invite your support. We plead for your support in going forward as we run into situations. Even if you don't know all of the circumstances to it, just know that what God's word says, we have to act in order to govern the church. Very broad there, I know, but I have nothing specific in mind. Um, other examples of how we corporately obey and resist the tide of culture is, is here's one right off the bat. Women don't lead the church. The culture says elsewise. elsewise. We'll see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you don't believe me, we'll come and we'll discuss what that means and why. God isn't unreasonable. Pastors and elders are male role. We have to obey. We could turn to culture and ask, well, what would you like us to do? No. Instead, we obey. Another one here, just quick. Um, let's just take one. It's obvious. We, we do not condone, we don't normalize homosexuality. We don't. We're sorry. We're not going to marry that. We are not. It's not because we don't love you. It's not that we don't respect you or not that we don't want you to come to know Christ. God says we can't do it. So corporately as an organization, we're going to obey God and we're going to see him place us on the pathway to victory as a church through obedience. That means giving uh, generously to people who are in need, people who are impoverished, people who need fo- food. That is a command of scripture. We can make up all the excuses in the world to not do it. It's commanded in Scripture. Obeying God's commands is the pathway. I'm going to wrap up. Um, We want to hoist that trophy in the victory circle, whatever that looks like. We really do. We want to win, folks. We don't want to just, you know, tread water through our lives in church. And we don't know what that means means here. Is... is, uh, uh, victory, is that having a huge church with 10,000 people in it? Not necessarily, because there's plenty of churches with 10,000 people in it that aren't worth anything. It's not necessarily size, but we ex- would expect that God's going to bless it. We want to see a really big work of God where he uses us in our weaknesses, in our inabilities, to show how big his ability is going forward. We just need to, as Gerald said, trust and obey. And I'm just going to close with a couple things from... uh, Oh, I went a little long. I'm sorry. That's all right. Most of you would probably know John MacArthur, pastor out in uh, Grace Community Church in California. And some of you might have heard of my pastor back in in Denton, Texas, Pastor Tommy Nelson. And in different times in my life, being out at pastor's conferences at John MacArthur's and hearing him through different uh, tapes and stuff, the secret that he has laid out for his church success, and we'd anticipate that's a successful model, not because of its size, but because of its obedience. Same with the church that I came from in Texas. They're very, very obedient to God's word where they, you just do what God's word says. And that is what they say. When you say, how do you have a successful church? Both my old pastor, John MacArthur, say, when God's word says to do something, you do it. You do it. I pray that we would in ourselves, in our, in our individual lives, as a, as a church of loving people with one another, to grow more, to become more conformed to the image of Christ. Not only are we wearing the team jersey, 
we're up there at the end when we see Christ, and he's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Step into the winner's circle. Let's pray. Dear Father, sometimes we make life so hard, and, and Lord, we're weak. We really are weak, and, and we, we don't like to hurt feelings or do things, Lord, unnecessarily, but we pray that you'd strengthen us in your word, that we would know your word, that we'd study your word. Lord, it's so important to come together and hear your word. Oh, what an important function to just be at church. How do we know your word if we're not learning your word? So how would we know how to obey, Lord, if we weren't hearing how to obey or what to obey, Lord? Guide us in that. Help us to be uh, loyal to your word, Lord, obedient to your word, and help us to be, uh, to be useful to you. Thank you for today. Bless our week, Lord, and uh, help us to be strong in Christ. It's in his name we pray.